the age of 25, our brain becomes less adaptable and less neuroplastic. So it may be harder for us to learn new skills or adapt to new environments. But a study this month published in Cell Reports gives us insight into how we might be able to make our brain more neuroplastic and enhance our learning. Tune in to hear all the details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 61. My goal for this podcast is to bring a bit of scientific evidence to all of us so that we can be a little bit healthier and smarter every week. This week on the podcast, I wanted to try something a little bit different. Normally, I choose a topic and do a very in-depth overview by reading and sharing the results of many, many studies. But this past week, I came across a really interesting clinical trial and thought that for today's episode, I would like to share the findings of this paper and what the findings may mean to us. Let me know what you think of this episode and if you like this way of me sharing a new study that has recently come out. So for today's episode, I'm going to cover the concept of neuroplasticity, meaning how our brain can adapt and learn, and what we can do to enhance this to help us learn even better. And I will do that by focusing on a specific clinical study that was published in Cell Reports by Eichen Laub and colleagues a couple of weeks ago. So as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. Neuroplasticity is a common term that we use in neuroscience. It essentially means the ability of our brain to be adaptable. Neuroplasticity can be a good thing or a bad thing. For example, it could be a bad thing in the context of drug addiction. Over time, after long-term use of drugs like alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, we may become dependent on these drugs and might develop withdrawal symptoms. That is because our brain became used to the effects of these drugs, and the brain adapted to being exposed to these drugs over time. In this regard, the neuroplasticity can result in us being dependent on the drugs. But neuroplasticity can also be a good thing, especially in regard to us learning new skills, new knowledge, and learning to be able to adapt to new situations and new environments. For example, during this quarantine, if we learned to adapt to this new situation, it is possible that our brain went through some neuroplastic changes. After a certain age, we tend to lose some of our neuroplasticity or are less likely to have our brain adapt and learn new things. It is said that our brain is still developing until the age of 25, and that is because the brain is very neuroplastic and adaptable up until the age of 25, but after roughly the age of 25, these neuroplastic adaptations are less frequent. Well, in this clinical study that I'm going to share with you today, they created brain-computer interfaces, meaning an electrode was implanted into the brain of a couple participants. 
the conclusions of this study was that after learning a new pattern in a game, the neurons of the participant's brain replayed this sequence over and over even after the learning session was done. In particular, this replay of the sequence by the neurons was enhanced during a short nap of 20 to 30 minutes. This study gives us an important insight on how the brain learns. Learning does not happen during the actual task of learning, but it actually happens afterward and most strongly during rest. After the initial encoding, a memory is stabilized and enhanced during the process of consolidation or storage, and many studies show that the last step of memory consolidation requires sleep. So in very simple terms, after the age of 25, it might be harder for us to learn new skills and harder for us to adapt to new situations. So how can we make our brain more adaptable? Try learning something and being very focused on that task, and then try sleeping right after, because that can enhance the replaying of the memory by the neurons in our brain and can help with memory consolidation. In this episode, I will also cover a couple extra tips on how to keep our brain adaptable and able to learn. Now, let's get into the details. Neuroplasticity, more specifically, is about the connections between neurons in our brain. These connections can either weaken or strengthen over time. So a connection between brain regions can become stronger or weaker over time. This can have huge implications for our mental well-being, our ability to learn, our mood, our behavior, our resiliency, etc. Let me give you an example. There is a connection in our brain between two brain regions, the interpeduncular nucleus and the median raphe nucleus. This connection between these two regions in our brain is really important for our feelings of stress and anxiety. You see, the interpeduncular nucleus tells the median raphe nucleus to inhibit itself, to reduce anxiety and to reduce stress. Now that connection, that inhibitory signal, can become stronger or weaker, which can therefore impact our feelings of stress and anxiety. Now what makes this connection stronger or weaker? That is a whole area of neuroscience that I am currently investigating in one of my projects. But it appears that, for example, a history of drug use, like a history of long-term alcohol use, or whether we are male or female even, may impact the strength of this circuit and therefore could impact our feelings of stress and anxiety. We also know that connections can weaken over time in drug addiction. For example, there is a connection between two brain regions that regulate the aversive negative symptoms of drug use. For example, if you ever smoked a cigarette or a cigar and felt somewhat nauseous or your stomach was very upset, those are examples of aversive symptoms. These aversive symptoms are important because they tell us, our brain is telling us to stop consuming this thing because it could be harmful. And these aversive negative symptoms seem to be re regulated by a particular circuit in our brain between the medial habenula and the interpeduncular nucleus. Now over time with drug use like cocaine, nicotine, alcohol use, the negative symptoms seem to become less and less and therefore more of the drug is able to be consumed. Now, this could potentially be due to weakening of the connections between brain regions that are involved in drug aversion or the negative symptoms. And the brain regions that could control some of those negative effects of drugs include the medial habenula to the interpeduncular nucleus. Now there is a, another connection called the fascicular retroflexus. That is, in preclinical models, we literally see that this connection, the fascicular retroflexus, degrades with drug use. 
the brain loses the ability to send the signal of aversion. It loses the ability to send the signal of negative side effects or that we can't really send the signal anymore that too much of this drug has been consumed. These are all part of the neurobiological reasons or adaptations of our brain that contribute to drug addiction. I said before, for example, our brain on alcohol episode, in drug addiction or addiction, the brain literally changes. Addiction is called a brain disease for that reason. And the brain changes in a way that can perpetuate or worsen an addiction. This is why it has been said that if drugs are taken younger than the age of 25, that addictive drugs may have an even larger impact on the individual's mental well-being or their behavior or their propensity for a drug addiction because up until the age of 25, the brain is very adaptable and flexible, meaning that it's more likely to be impacted by environmental factors. Whereas after the age of 25, the brain is more concrete, so to speak. The environmental stimuli are less likely to impact the brain and the functioning of neurons and the connections. And the question becomes, can these changes be reversed? Well, in preclinical models, it appears that with drug abstinence, some regeneration of these connections is possible. So yes, it's possible that if someone reduces or cuts out the alcohol or cigarettes or drugs that they're using, yes, some of these pathways can have neuroplastic adaptations that are beneficial to bring them back to normality. So this is why the area of neuroplasticity, or our brain's ability to adapt, is so important. Neuroplasticity determines our mood, our behavior, and our ability to learn. And today I'm going to focus on a clinical study that looked specifically at learning and memorization. It is said that our prefrontal cortex of our brain, which is the higher order brain region of our brain that determines our memories, our decision making, our information processing, this part of the brain continues to develop and is very adaptable and neuroplastic until approximately the age of 25 years. So in general terms, our brain may not be fully developed until the age of approximately 25. At the age of 25, the ability for the brain to adapt may become less and less with time. That is why generally it is easier for people under the age of 25 to learn a new language, to pick up a new skill more quickly, or to adapt to a new environment more easily. Neuroplasticity happens more readily under the age of 25. So after the age of 25, if we want to be more adaptable, if we want to learn new skills, how can we make our brain more neuroplastic? Well, in the clinical trial published in Cell Reports on May 5th by Eichenlaub and colleagues, they looked at the electrical activity of specific neurons in the motor cortex of the brain in two patients that were set up with brain-computer interfaces. Now, I talked about brain-computer interfaces back in episode 56, where I interviewed Dr. David Petrino, a neuroscientist here at Mount Sinai. Now, David works with Thomas Oxley to implant electrodes in the brain in order to generate those brain-computer interfaces. So, essentially, the electrode implanted in the brain can record the electrical activity of the patient's neurons in their brain and transmit that signal to a computer to be analyzed. But at the same time, the brain-computer interfaces allow the patients to connect thought with action, meaning that they can think of doing something and it will happen on the computer. It will not require any actual physical movement. The thought will equal the action. It is really quite remarkable. For example, a patient with the electrode implanted 
in a specific part of their brain can think, I want the computer cursor or pointer to go over to the right side of the screen. And they imagine their hand being on the cursor and moving it to that right part of the screen and the computer cursor will do it. It won't require any physical action. This is particularly important for individuals that have lost their physical capabilities, such as those with severe ALS or those with tetraplegia or paralysis. These brain-computer interfaces can connect thought with action. The hope is with their thoughts, these individuals might be able to control more on the computer than just moving a cursor, but perhaps they'll be able to actually communicate with others, which is something, unfortunately, they've lost, or even be able to move a robotic arm so that the arm can do some simple tasks for them. In that regard, their quality of life can be greatly enhanced. Neurotechnology in particular is quite a remarkable and promising field of neuroscience right now, and in my personal opinion, I think the most promising field in neuroscience. So in this paper that was published in Cell Reports this month, the scientists use brain-computer interfaces as well. So the scientists use the electrodes in the brain to record the electrical activity of specific neurons in the motor cortex of the brain while the participants learned a complicated sequence and pattern. Now in this study, the participants included two patients with tetraplegia. Now tetraplegia is caused by illness or injury that results in the partial or total loss of use of their legs and arms and torso. The participants were implanted with electrodes in the motor, motor cortex of the brain that would allow recording of the electrical activity of neurons. But this electrode would also allow for the creation of brain-computer interfaces. What this means is the participants had the ability to perform the simple task, such as moving a cursor over a certain shape, just by thinking about it. So in this clinical trial, the participants had the ability to memorize a sequence and to move the computer cursor over different shapes of different colors on the computer screen. So the movement of the cursor was under neural control. How cool is that? Can you imagine that, that you just think it and then it will happen? Neuroscience has come so far that with science, people just thinking of something can actually result in a physical action. So in this study, the aim was to understand the neuron activity during learning. The two participants were asked to take a short nap of 20 to 30 minutes, then to learn a new sequence and pattern where using their thinking, they had to move the cursor over the different colored shapes in order to repeat the sequence. They had to do this repeatedly, memorizing the sequence and moving the cursor over a 20 minute period. Then the participants went about doing different activities or were asked to take another short nap of 20 to 30 minutes. They could see a specific electrical pattern coming from the neurons when the participants were trying to learn the sequence and carrying out the pattern. What is special about the brain-computer interfaces is the scientists know the exact neuron electrical signal that controls the participant's ability to move the cursor and memorize the sequence. Other ways of measuring in the past, such as with an EEG or fMRI or PET scan, just can't be this specific. With the brain-computer interface, they literally know which neurons and which electrical signal are causing the movement of the cursor and to memorize that sequence. So the scientists would detect exactly which signal controlled their ability to move the cursor over the specified patterns. Then the scientists continued to record these same neurons afterward, and they were looking for that same electrical pattern. They wanted to see when these neurons would fire or be activated again. Now from animal studies of the past, when animals would try to learn new tasks, it appeared that the learning 
or the neuroplasticity or adaptation of the brain seems to happen during sleep. So the scientists wanted to record the electrical activity of these neurons while the humans slept after learning the new pattern. What this study showed was the neurons will replay this electrical pattern of learning when the participants have moved on to do something different while they were awake. But what was even cooler was that if the participants took a short nap of about 20 to 30 minutes, even a light sleep, they didn't have to be in a deep REM sleep, but even in a light non-REM sleep, then this electrical pattern of the neurons was even further enhanced and fired even more frequently. The neurons in their brain literally replayed the memory over and over again while they rested. What this means is that taking a short nap after learning something may enhance the neuroplastic adaptations in our brain, which could enhance learning and memory consolidation. So are naps a good idea? Yeah, this study and others previously show it could be a good idea, particularly if napping does not disrupt your nighttime sleep. Or perhaps a better option could be to try learning something right before bed. That way the information is fresh in your mind, so to speak, and sleeping will enhance the storage or consolidation of that memory even more. It would be great if another study could be done to see how long can we wait in between learning and sleeping for our brain to be able to learn and store that memory. We just don't know that right now. But what I can say is a review by Milner in 2009 concluded that in healthy adults, the ideal length of a nap was 10 to 20 minutes, they concluded, and that was to increase mental clarity, performance, and alertness. So Milner says 10 to 20 minutes may be ideal. This particular study by Eichenlaub looked at a 20 to 30 minute nap, so maybe 20 minutes is the sweet spot. So if you are trying to learn a new language, a new skill, or studying for something, perhaps taking a short nap right after learning, or choosing to study right before bed may help with memory consolidation. Now, making sure to get adequate sleep beforehand is also important. Matthew Walker, a well-known sleep scientist, has published on this topic several times. For example, back in 2006, he wrote a review on how sleep deprivation can dramatically hamper or reduce our ability to learn new skills and to store memories. So we cannot sacrifice our night sleep either. But this is a very cool study to show that the neurons will literally replay the memory of us learning. And that that replay of that sequence or replaying of that memory is enhanced in sleep. This kind of gives us an insight into the purpose of sleep. You know, several years ago, Nettergaard had shown that the purpose of sleep is to increase the functioning of the lymphatic system, which will reduce or clear out the metabolic waste of the brain. And that happens during deep REM sleep. Well, this also suggests that during sleep, memory consolidation is also important. That sleep is a very active process. And while we dream or while we sleep, we are actually reliving or replaying our day's activities, which is very cool. So if taking a short nap or getting proper night's sleep is really important for our brain's ability to learn and our brain's ability to be neuroplastic, is there anything else that we could do? Well, we have known for a long time that exercise also promotes neuroplasticity or our brain's flexibility and adaptability. Hodding in 2013 wrote a great comprehensive review on how exercise can promote cognition. Many intervention trials have looked at the ability of exercise training programs to increase cognition, as well as to increase a marker of neuroplasticity found in the blood called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. 
For example, many trials recruited individuals that were sedentary, meaning individuals that really didn't exercise very much. And they split these individuals into two groups, either a control group that remained as they were, or an intervention group that started an exercise program where they would exercise anywhere from three to seven times a week. Typically, the exercise included aerobic exercises like walking, cycling, and water aerobics. Now, their cognition, such as their ability to process information, their speed of thinking, decision-making, and memory, were tested before and after the exercise program. And many clinical trials concluded that measures of cognition improved after an exercise program. And levels of BDNF, which is a marker of neuroplasticity or our brain's adaptability, also increased with exercise programs. Other areas of research show that intense focus while learning is associated with better learning and for promoting neuroplasticity. Camindola in 2019 wrote a review on how coffee and tea, which contain stimulants like caffeine, theothrombine, and theophylline, may also promote neuroplasticity. Perhaps it is because of the increased attention, alertness, and focus that these stimulants can provide. Several clinical trials illustrate that low doses of caffeine from coffee or tea may enhance learning. Animal studies show that injection of caffeine immediately after a task can also enhance memory retainment. However, in this animal study, injecting caffeine is not something we want to do, and injecting caffeine is different than us drinking coffee because when we drink coffee, it will take longer for the caffeine to enter our bloodstream. So the timing of the animal study to human trials may not necessarily translate very well. But perhaps to promote our learning, we could think of drinking a small amount of caffeine, such as from a cup of coffee or green or black tea, while we're learning and studying something in order to help us feel alert. And then we could take a short nap of, say, 20 minutes afterward. This specific combination and timing has yet to be studied in regard to learning performance and neuroplasticity. This is just a hypothesis I'm making based on what we know so far. Or conversely, we can try to learn something or review what we learned earlier in the day just right before bed. So for example, if you're studying or learning a new language and you're learning in the morning, you don't have time to take a nap or you don't want to take a nap, then perhaps right before bed, you can take a few minutes just to quickly review what you had learned and then go to sleep. That may promote memory consolidation and your ability to learn new skills and to be more adaptable. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. In this episode, I touch upon the topic of neuroplasticity, meaning our brain's ability to adapt. After the age of 25, our brain tends to become less adaptable or less neuroplastic. So how can we promote our brain's adaptability and our continued ability to learn? Well, today I discussed some information coming from brain-computer interfaces. In this particular clinical trial by Eichenlaub, they show that when participants try to learn and memorize a particular sequence during a game, a specific neurons of their brain have a certain sequence of electrical activity. Then when the participants end their learning session, the neurons in their brain continue to replay that learning sequence over and over. This is when the memory is encoded and stabilized. This memory is replayed even more so and more frequently during a short, light nap of 20 to 30 minutes. This is called memory consolidation. So the learning or the memory consolidation actually happens after the learning session itself. So the scientists conclude that learning or neuroplasticity may be enhanced with short naps or with resting. 
And beyond this clinical trial, I also looked at several studies that support the idea that exercise and promoting intense focus while learning, such as with the use of caffeine, may promote learning, cognition, and neuroplasticity as well. But if consuming caffeine interferes with your ability to have a proper sleep, then that would negate the benefits. So you wouldn't want to do that. So only consume some sources of caffeine if it doesn't impair your sleep. Now, the Food and Drug Administration recommends that 400 milligrams of caffeine is safe to consume for most adults, and that equates to approximately two cups of coffee. So these are some tips in how we can potentially keep our brain adaptable and to promote our learning and retainment of new skills beyond the age of 25. I hope this information was useful and interesting for all of you. If you have any questions or feedback for me, then please feel free to reach out to me on any of my social media accounts. If you don't follow me already, then make sure to follow me on my social media because throughout the week, I like to share some extra tidbits of information on the week's topic. As well, I also will share the studies I mentioned in the week's episode. If you by chance are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know most of you do, then it would mean so much to me if you could take a moment to rate and review the show. This will allow other people who have yet to listen to the show to know if this podcast is worth a listen. Now, next weekend is Memorial Day long weekend here in the United States, so I will be taking next weekend off from the podcast, but I will continue to post on social media some cool scientific findings throughout the week. So the next podcast episode will be on May 31st. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. If you live in the United States, then happy Memorial Day long weekend. If you live in Canada, then you have the long weekend this weekend and happy long weekend this weekend. Hopefully, despite the quarantine, we can all find a way to celebrate in a fun and safe way. Sending you all well wishes for the next couple of weeks, and I will meet you back here on May 31st. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.